Better Human Show, episode 39, Erica Spiegelman. You know, my values shifted. When I got sober, it was like, oh, finally, take off the masks. My value now, and I made a conscious decision to always hold that word authenticity in the front of my mind, and that's my North Star. And no matter what I'm doing for the rest of my life, it's going to be authentic. Welcome to the Better Human Podcast, where we talk health and fitness, nutrition, relationships, personal development, and giving back. How to be more effective and an overall better human being. Now, here's your host, David Ratchford. Better Humans, today we are joined by addiction and wellness specialist, motivational speaker, and author, Erica Spiegelman. She helps change lives by working with individuals on personal growth by treating the mind, body, and spirit. She's also the founder of EricaSpiegelman.com, a multimedia health platform and blog. And my introduction to Erica was through her book, Rewired, A Bold New Approach to Addiction and Recovery. Erica, welcome to The Better Human Show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be with you. Today, um, usually we like to get started by just getting to know our guests. So tell us a little bit more about you and what led Mm -hmm. you into the recovery and um, addiction space. Um, Well, I, you know, I have been in this industry as a professional, uh, as a counselor, a speaker, uh, obviously a writer, um, for, for almost about 10 years. And before that, um, I was, you know, doing many different things in my early twenties, but, um, most importantly, that's when I got sober. So I myself quit drinking and, uh, went back to school at UCLA to better understand the brain and to better understand how addictive behaviors come to be. And, um, after that just started on this path and never looked back. It's really just taken off from there. Um, I absolutely love to help people and I love to coach people and hold their hand, especially, um, you know, once they're kind of in the early sobriety, they have one foot in the the door of treatment and then they have one foot out in the real world. And, and I help people with, I do phone sessions over the phone and one-on-one sessions in person and, um, have a lot of different business ventures because there's a lot of great stuff going on in this field. So, um, it's exciting. It's an exciting time. It's also a time of great, you know, it's, it's a great loss. We have an epidemic going on in our country, but I think there's a lot of professionals stepping up to give, uh, us a chance to find new ways of healing. And, uh, I have that also on my radio show. Right. Right. And actually you have me on, I think the episode will go live by the time this airs. And, um, certainly, um, I think it goes live tomorrow (laughs) in real life. Yes. Awesome. It goes live tomorrow. (laughs) Yep. If you were willing to go there, because, you know, I think the origin story, um, you said, you know, you did a lot of things in your 20s, but before you got sober, you were obviously struggling with some addiction and, um, you know, abuse issues with, with, it sounds like specifically alcohol. Um, Can you go back with us to, to share with our audience a little bit more about that and what it was that made you realize that you needed to make a change there. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I totally um, embrace talking about it because I think all of us should be proud of our stories. And, and I feel like I had a lot of courage to take a look at what was wrong and address it, but it wasn't as that easy. You know, I mean, I, I began drinking at 13. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of teenagers do kind of experiment and that was me. And, um, 
even back then knew I really liked it. Like it was, I wasn't addicted <laughs> by any means, but I definitely had an, uh, liking to it and a more, more like prone to try things. I was very adventurous, independent. And so, you know, from alcohol and pot and then cigarettes and that kind of thing. And through, you know, I, I was successful through school, pretty much through college. Uh, but college really was when I saw my drinking take another turn. It was just habitually like every single day and night. Um, I went to like a very big party school. Do you school. mind disclosing that? I'm just curious. Is that the... <laughs> Oh, yeah. oh, University okay. of Arizona. And as a UCSB graduate, yeah. um, we're, we're competing against yeah. each other, U, U of A and UCSB, yeah. um, for party school of the, you know, the Western um, states. Exactly. Exactly. I know. I know you, 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 Santa Barbara too is a big one. Um, but yeah, it, it, I mean, that's when I kind of just saw like, oh wow, this is kind of getting out of control. Cause I would look forward to, you know, what are we doing tonight and going out and drinking before we went out and drinking after we got back from going out. And, you know, it was, nor- it was normalized in a sense because everybody was doing it. But I think I, uh, the inner voice inside of me knew that there was an issue, but I was like, you know, I'll deal with it later. And, and then, you know, I, I moved to New York in my early twenties. Um, after I graduated college and was floundering around there and just drinking nonstop. And that's when I became really isolated and kind of stopped talking to my family that often. I would just, you know, kind of hide out or ignore them. And I I think my mom knew that there was something wrong. And then when I came home and moved back from New York to San Francisco, where I'm originally from, um, you know, everybody saw that there was a change just in my spirit. Like I wasn't happy. I physically... It was like shaky all the time. I probably looked horrible. You know, just just a lot of lot of red flags, a lot of signs. Um, and you know, my mom was the only one that kept saying, you know, there's something wrong. Do you have a problem with alcohol? And I kept saying no. You know, make a long story short, that went on for many years actually, until you know, it was just I couldn't. I was miserable. I asked like I was sitting on the stairs one day in San Francisco on my stoop, and in the morning and there was wine by my bed from the night before and I took it and I went outside to drink it. And that's when I was like, okay, someone needs to help me. God help me. I literally said it out loud, even though, you know, I wasn't speaking to a specific God. I was just, that was kind of where I was at. And I I won't ever forget that day because I think it was my, uh, really my internal bottom. Like, I feel like that was the bottom, um, internally. And, 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 you know, a lot of people I think feel like they need an external bottom for something to change. And for me, it really was an internal thing. Um, I never got a DUI. I never was, you know, troubled the law. I didn't have, you know, friendships that ended crazy, but, but I did have enough, you know, I, I, I lost enough of my spirit to actually feel the hopelessness and the darkness that and I, think I think a lot that's of important feel. to, to, to say is that, but you did have your mother there that was constantly at, for certain, not nagging, but she was supporting you and saying, she was asking and inquiring and caring. And I think that's one of the areas where when we do begin to isolate, um, sometimes we, like I know when, when I was at my bottoms, um, and I'll, I'll say that plural because I wasn't smart enough to pull out of the, you know, just one. Um, but, I, but I remember going mm-hmm. through and, and thinking, I wish that there was somebody that cared enough that saw me enough that, you know, would wonder why haven't I seen David, you know, for a while. And, and, you know, I, I wish that I could, I wish that my friends were checking in and would say, Hey, you know, it doesn't look like you're living in alignment with your values here, guy, (laughs) you know, and, 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 you know, I think like you, I had to hit that internal bottom too. Um, what, um, 
What advice do you have for people who feel like they're they're just in alone or they, they've um, sort of isolated? And why do we isolate? Well, I mean, I, my mom, well, honestly, she was not, she was asking in a caring way, but she was also nagging. I mean, she would not let up, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's why I would isolate. I wouldn't want to see her. I, I literally would not return her calls or make excuses. And, and that's one thing. I think people isolate because they don't want to have to deal with people's reactions to them or what they have to maybe possibly say. Also, I think that, you know, we isolate too, because we don't want someone to control our drug use or our drinking. You know, we don't want anybody to say like, Hey, that's enough. You've had like four glasses already, you know, better to just stay at home and do what you need to, what you want to do. Um, I also think, you know, I mean, physically I wasn't even comfortable going out to public places anymore. Um, I, I didn't really want to meet new people. I felt like I have nothing really to give them. And, um, you know, after a while, I mean, all of that just becomes so depressing that I think the depression kicks in and then you really mm. just don't want to see anybody. So, so let's talk about how you devised a way to pull yourself out. After you found that, that self-identified bottom, um, what were some of the steps that mm -hmm. you took, um, which eventually it sounds like became the basis of your book, Rewired? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I tried, um, well, actually I went to a program, I went to a treatment program and, and stayed for a short period of time, but it was long enough for me. Um, you know, I would recommend people uh, to stay longer, a but, program, um, you specifically mean yeah. you went into a rehab program or was this more like a 12 step, uh, type, um, no, no, no. Okay. I went into a treatment center. Yeah. A rehab program, um, for 30 days. Um, and it was 12 step based actually. Um, which I knew nothing about. I'd never even heard of the 12 steps before this. I knew nothing about alcohol, alcoholism. I had no clue what a rehab was. But at that at that time, the day that I was just like, listen, I need help and I'm ready to get, a, get it. My mom was just like, okay, great. We're sending you to the only rehab she ever heard of. So that was it. Um, and I left after 30 days. Um, but I really did after I did leave, I did put together a plan. It was kind of like, it was like a second, second coming, a rebirth after I left there. And I was just like very adamant about staying sober and healthy. And I, and I, and I, and I think it's really because this is what I'm supposed to do in my life. And I think that was very meant to be that I had to go through that to do what I do now. But, um, I, you know, I started running, I started exercising, I started keeping myself on a really tight routine and schedule. I'd go to bed by 1030. I'd take a bath. I'd take care of myself. A lot of self-compassion, self-care, um, healthy solitude, you know, like even if I was, you know, let's say I was, my mom was in town or I'd see family or I had friends or whatever, I would still, no matter what, take that hour every single morning to meditate on what I was grateful for, to take a 30 minute run, to make a nice, beautiful breakfast, to, you know, have, have those moments that ground me and keep me really appreciative and grateful for my, my second chance at life. I mean, that's, and I held that really tight for the first three to four or five years even, you know, um, and, you know, reading tons of books on mindfulness and, um, AA really didn't um, take root in my life. I, it just kind of, it was helpful at, at the center. I learned about the 12 steps. I I think I even probably maybe went through a step or two, but not nothing official. Um, but it was really something that 
that for me didn't didn't stick to my life, but I do appreciate it, and I do feel like it, it's the most fantastic program for many, many millions of people and, and a lot of my clients. So I'm open to that too. I just I gravitated more towards exercise, healthy living, healthy nutrition, reading about mindfulness, some Buddhist principles, um, and really having healthy people around me. I mean, just getting rid of all negative relationships that didn't serve me. I moved to a new city. I went back to school at UCLA. I surrounded myself with people that were interested in healthy living. Um, and you know, just kept, Mm -hmm. kept good people close. I think there's a lot there. Um, you obviously touched on a self-care at the beginning. You know, that's the first step that you that that you really reprogrammed yourself with in the habits, the morning yeah. routine. Um, what was the the big effect for you in identifying your triggers? I mean, I, I know in your book you you talk about like um, just being really honest with yourself. And, it, and that being mm-hmm. the first step or the yeah. first, you know, the, the most important step in one's recovery. Why is honesty so important and why as um, abusers of alcohol or drugs do we end up, do we become such liars to ourselves? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think in order to keep poisoning yourself, I think you have to kind of tell yourself some stories, you know, I think you're going to have to give yourself excuses and that, you know, that the kind of first lie plants the seed and it spreads like wildfire. It's just a drink, right? Yeah. The first slide is just, oh, it's just a drink. Or, you know, like I talk about this too, you know, when I was 13, I remember I, the first time I, someone gave me a a puff of a cigarette and I was like, oh, first of all, I I was told never to smoke and didn't really think it was that glamorous and didn't even really like how it felt. But I remember doing that. And I remember thinking, whoops, there goes a piece of my integrity, you know, or my mom smelt it on me getting in the car that day. She says, someone's smoking, you know, no, no, no one was smoking. There's the lie. You know, these are like teeny tiny things that start way long time way 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 many many years ago I mean or, or or even on such a subconscious level you may not even remember it and and that's when the first moment of integrity gets chipped away at and then and then it's and then it's okay well I smoked a cigarette so I'll try pot and then you try pot and then you try oh you know and then that just goes it's just a domino effect and then before you know it you're like in your mid-20s or 30s or 40s and you wake up and you're like where's my integrity all I do is lie, you know, you also, you know, have to like, when you're living and waking up every morning with that self betrayal, the shame of like, especially me, when I first knew I had a problem, it took me another five to six years to actually get help. I mean, those five to six years I had every morning, that feeling of, Oh God, what did I do again? And how can I get out of this? And I can't really get out of this. The only thing that makes me feel less shaky and less anxious is to just have another drink. And that cycle started. And that went on for years. And that kind of shame-based living is what self-betrayal is. And with self-betrayal, you have to start lying because you have to lie to yourself and others that, you know, if anyone cares about you, they're going to notice that something's going on. But it's tough to break out of that, right? I mean, like I've noticed that when I've been in that pattern, you know, it's easier to stay in the pattern. And, um, I, I think what's tough is that we're, we're brought up into this, um, this self flagellating or beating ourselves up, um, reaction where, um, the only salve is, you know, to numb it back out. Um, because we're not very good at being nice to ourselves, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Especially not when you're at that place. I mean, it's not, it's not easy to be nice to yourself even when you're in the healthiest place because it's still like, 
you know, I'll put this person's needs first. You know, I, I'll deal with my needs later. Like, you know, we, we learn all, I don't know how, but we, we would be nice to other people before we'd be nice to ourselves, you know, and especially when you're coming out of a period of abusing something or drugs or not, or, you know, alcohol, whatever, whatever it is, or, or eating or gambling, or, you know, we, we really start to sabotage our lives in so many ways. And it's such, and it's hard for other people that haven't been through this to understand. I say it's really an emotional, mental, physical, spiritual, um, ailment, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's, it takes over all parts of your life and it really hijacks you know, every piece. Mm-hmm. I and mean, that's just what now, happens. For those that are not in recovery or that may not even have problems, um, maybe you can shed some light on the general statistics of alcohol abuse, whether we call it alcoholism or problem drinking. Like, you know, is it really affecting? you know, 20% of the population and 80% is lucky enough to be able to have a glass of wine and then call it at that. You know what? It's, it's, the numbers are really hard to put on to this epidemic and issue because half the people don't even know whether they're drinking problematically or report it. You know, if you go into a doctor, I went into my doctor recently and she said, um, and she forgot that I didn't drink. She, I mean, I must have gone to her maybe two or three times. She's some, somewhat new. You know, I haven't been seeing her for decades. And she said, so how many drinks do you drink a week? One drink, two drinks, three drinks, four drinks, five drinks. This was like a, this was like a, she gave me a handout, you know, like a, a, work, a worksheet. And I was like thinking, you know one drink a week? Like, who's going to tell you that the drink, who, first of all, drinks one drink a week? I don't know, probably people do, but, but when I was looking at five was the max that she put on there. I was like, that, that was, in, that was the <laughs> right. beginning of a night. That was in the, in the yeah. first hour of a night, one night, you know, I mean, what? Um, so no, I don't think numbers really do anything justice, but, but I do like, I mean, what you're saying is it's, you know, it's important to touch upon is that there are binge drinkers. You know, I have people that, that, that are really struggling, but yet, you know, they, they could go three or four days a week, not think about alcohol, supposedly not touch it. And, and then all of a sudden on the weekends is when they just binge, you know, maybe they're just looking forward to that the whole week, who knows, or they have dependent drinkers, people that drink, you know, one to three glasses a night of alcohol, and then they go to bed, but they drink every single night. Or you have people that, you know, are more alcoholic and they drink multiple drinks every day. You have people that, you know, it, it just it depends. People that smoke pot when they wake up and they have a couple puffs and that's it for the whole day. That's what gets yeah, them started in their day. Yeah, there's a song about that. Remember, <laughs> the smoke that... two joints. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Yes, I mean, so this. I'm just saying, there's so many different ways and people use 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 mm-hmm. something to distract so themselves. So the key part is though when we find that we don't want those effects in our life because alcohol brings with it or, or drugs bring with it some other problems that that's when we need to look at rewiring ourselves. And what I really liked about the book was that you really focused on, it was a combination of values and then real practical steps. And how is that different than a lot of the other kind of recovery programs or, um, you know, methodologies that are out there? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, with values, really, I think, I think our core values change when we change our behaviors. You know, I value authenticity now. It's like my, my highest value. I I feel like 
I have to judge everything in my life if it feels authentic, a relationship, my work, um, what I just said to you. It doesn't matter. It all should be coming from an authentic place. When I was using, I, I was wearing a mask, every multiple masks a day. I was not authentic. When I was talking to you, I wasn't even present. I was waiting to hear what you had to say so I could say what I thought you wanted me to, to say. Nothing was authentic. Nothing came from, from my truth. So, you know, my values shifted. When I got sober, it was like, oh, finally, take off the masks. My value now, and I made a conscious decision to always hold that word authenticity in the front of my mind, and that's my North Star. And no matter what I'm doing for the rest of my life, it's going to be authentic. Um so values are important. You know, honesty is another value, something where I was not honest. I, I don't want to lie anymore. And I don't want, you know, and I want to learn how to say no. And I don't have to tell you a lie of why I'm saying no. And I don't have to even tell you why I'm saying no. I could just have good boundaries and say no. You know, no, I don't feel like going to that party or no, I'm not going to be able to make it. I don't have to start. You know, when I first got sober, I started having boundaries, but then giving somebody a whole song right. and dance and, of why and, I can't I think do it's something. cool and, that you don't have to attach a story yeah. to everything. No, you do not have to, but that's what I learned to do that because I was a, such a pleaser and, and that was, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother story of, of probably having the oldest child and you know, whatever it's, but I, you know, I always wanted to make people happy and please them. So I always felt like, oh, I should have to give them an excuse and give them a good story, even if that story is a lie. And then, you know, one day I, I did, I told like a white lie of why I couldn't go to this girl inviting me over for a dinner. And she, I ran into her at the market while she was getting things for the dinner. And she was like, oh, I thought you said you were going to be somewhere else. And that was it. After that day, I was like, I, I'm not even doing this anymore. <laughs> so it's not per- perfect at first, but I, you know, I mean, this is why I work with clients right away and tell them, you know. You don't have to start even with white lies. You don't have to, you know, I, I just, I tried to impose some of these things that I learned um, yeah, so that they don't really have to go through that. Because I think a lot of people um, don't even need to hear the story. And it's kind of like that the, the most people are so caught up in their own stuff that they don't need to know. Yeah. You know, it's like the, the things that I concern myself with are where do I need to be when? You know, it's, do I need to show yeah. up at a certain time? Do I need to make a call? Do I need, and then the other question is, what do I need to do once I'm there? And if I don't want to show up, it's been really liberating just to say, sorry, I'm not going to be able to make it to whatever. Um, or sometimes I don't even right. say sorry because I'm not sorry. I just don't want to go. <laughs> and it's really liberating. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It is. And people don't, don't say anything poorly about you. They actually probably respect the fact that you are sure of yourself and you're assertive and you know what's going on in your own life, you know, instead of being wishy-washy or saying, maybe I'll show up and then you don't, and then you become a flake and you know, it's just not good. So going back into the, the values, you mentioned, um, solitude and meditation, like your Buddhist studies and et cetera. Why is solitude so important in knowing ourselves in solitude and getting comfortable with that? Well, I think everybody has to know how to sit with themselves in the quiet moments, you know, like to, to sit with myself and my thoughts and understand, okay, you know, like even on Monday, this past Monday, I had a long weekend and a lot went on. And I and I was just, I found myself in my office by myself for the first time in a couple of days, you know, because I've been with people and, and energy. And I just said, okay, I'm going to take even this next 
15, 20 minutes, not look through my emails, not work on other things I have to do. I'm just going to sit here, process this weekend, set my intentions for this week, go over what I'm grateful for. I need that time. You know, I mean, even that solitude, just 15 minutes in between <laughs> your work sessions or something during the day. Or, you know, no matter what, I, I think getting outside, being in nature, exercising, walking, it doesn't have to be anything strenuous, but being alone in nature, listening to the wind, looking at what's going on above above you and around you is really important. You know, I feel like it's really rare that we get a moment to kind of sit with ourselves. And, you know, I know it's hard for people that are coming out of a, a, a cycle or let's say a chapter of their lives where they're, you know, they're really distracting themselves. They're distracting with drugs, distracting with alcohol or people or whatever it is. And now all of a sudden, all that's gone all the, you know, all the distractions are gone and now they're, they're by themselves having to deal with what they just went through and having to deal with, you know, maybe some resentments they have, or maybe some amends they want to make, or maybe, you know, just, just being uncomfortable with their emotions, you know? So I think it's really important that we get to know our emotions again. You know, I, for me, I never, I didn't allow myself to feel sad for all those years. You know, I just, if I felt started to feel sad, I would drink, or if I started to feel happy, I'd go celebrate. It didn't matter. I didn't know what it really even felt like to feel. So I always encourage people to, the solitude is there for you to learn how to marinate in your emotions That's again. That's awesome. And marinating in our emotions I think we can learn that we don't always have to react to them. And that's one of the the teachings of the Buddha yeah. is that we can observe that sometimes we have a feeling or and it results in a sensation. For example, anger bringing up heat and a flushness to the face or, or that I remember mm-hmm. when I went through my divorce, um, one of the, uh, I, I had gone through a Vipassana meditation training and it was so amazing because um, I, I used to have a, a specific ringtone for my ex and whenever it happened, you know, I would, I would like, I, I knew to ignore it or because we had an agreement that we were supposed to be texting or emailing. And I remember, um, but I would get this flush, you know, this anger and this rage would boil up in me because I knew that it was then either going to have to go through the attorney or whatever, you know, it was going to, it was just a very emotional time. And, and after the the Vipassana training, I was, I would realize, Oh, there's the flush, there's the heat and there's the short breath. And then I would realize it's Mm going to pass. And, and that's what learning to sit can do for us is, is that we can sit in these sensations and observe it instead of being the reactor. We can, respond appropriately when we need to. Yeah. Yeah. And learning how to embrace, like, this is the, first of all, the mindfulness stuff was really helpful in in this kind of thing, which is to embrace, let's just take sadness for an example, embrace your sadness, own it, let it in, say hi to it, you know, honor it and then let it go, you know? Yeah. And so let's look at some of that because a lot of times our Emotion, our emotional reaction, some of the things that we're trying to cover up are direct response to things that happen in our childhood, Um, sometimes trauma or something that happened in our life or perhaps we just had a bad example, you know, by by our parents or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. As an addiction counselor... Obviously, you deal with this more on a on a case or on a client basis. How do you counsel your patients or clients to deal with those past hurts? 
that some that are sometimes mm-hmm. triggers. Well, uh, and you know, for example, somebody who's been a victim of, or excuse me, a survivor of abuse, and and they would say. Any normal person would say, well, of course she drinks. You know, look at what happened to her when she was young. Or, uh, you know, um, how do you counsel on that? Well, I mean, I think I think the best way or the best thing to do first is to be aware of the pain. You know, where did the pain come from? Where did it start? Whether it was you're bullied in school, you had a learning disability, or you were, let's say, God forbid, you know, abused in some way. Um there's, you know, different kinds of trauma. There's a different, there's a continuum scale. There's little traumas, big traumas, things in between. It doesn't matter. It, it, you don't need to minimize any of them. They all count as something that, you know, is a dysregulation of your nervous system. That's what trauma is. So, um, first to f- identify it, I, I make my clients aware of what maybe, maybe they're not aware of everything, but the ones that I could say, you know, I'll, I'll ask them, you know, about school, about family, about, you know, people around them. And then, and like you said, you know, yeah, there may be a horrific trauma that happened. And, you know, of course, of course they're going to distract or or try to numb that pain. But honestly, um, that pain is what really will help them heal in the end. It's just about us, us being aware, working together on letting go of that or leaning into it and finding the silver lining, finding the lesson. And even in, it's not about forgiving your perpetrator, forgiving someone that hurt you. It's about moving forward and, and taking a lesson from it so that you are allowed to let it go so that you don't have to hold on to it, you know? I, I think that's why that chapter on compassion really, your chapter on compassion really hit home for me um, was because mm-hmm. of some of the trauma that I experienced or, you know, that was in my family that that I realized that, you know, I was reacting in a per- perfectly normal way for a kid my age, you know, and specifically, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I think we talked about it on your show, but, but my audience hasn't heard the yeah. story. Um, but, um, oh. so when I was 13, you know, my mom was raped by a gang of men. And all I knew was that it was, you know, it was a result of her being out drinking on the wrong side of town. She got in a fight with her alcoholic boyfriend who had sponged off of her and that I hated. So I blamed him and I blamed her and, you know, and all of this, you know, it, it, it made me a very angry kid. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, it, it, so. it sounds pretty logical. Um, but then again, I kind of took it mm-hmm. out and was, you know, a, a bit of a, a dick to my mom because, you know, I... I resented her for making herself unsafe, you know, and and for making choices with Mm -hmm. her boyfriend at the time. And, you know, um, so I was kind of, you know, I kind of became a a punk kid and I held that Mm -hmm. for a long time and it really made me angry. You know, it even made me Republican for a while. Um, (laughs) It's true. I was like a gun-toting Republican for a long time because, you know, I had so much rage that I needed to, uh, you know, be an advocate for, you know, violence and safety and protection. Um, But um, the... 
the at at the end of the day, you know, I, I realized that I needed to forgive myself for that for my reaction, and it was perfectly normal, and you know, treat myself a little more kindly, and and then you know, I the whole aspect of letting that go was tremendously freeing, and and all of a sudden I, I realized that you know there, there's a lot of freedom and forgiveness, and that is one of the keys that helped me really release. Um, the habit or the dependency on alcohol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm happy that, that that's how you found that, you know? Um, and, and it's really hard when we're not quite clear on, um, I think, I, I think it's also really quite unclear when, when you don't know what your core injury is, because a lot of people do have, I mean, you had a severe trauma happen to you. Um, and, and, and that obviously, you know, it's, it, it bled into all parts of your life. And then there's some people that really don't understand that, you know, um, the loss of their sibling or something, you know, I mean, you would think that that's a, that that's an obvious trauma, but you know, it's like, Oh no, my, my, my brother was sick with cancer for many years and he died. Well, I, I had time to, you know, get used to that, that I, that's not a trauma for me. Or somebody will say like, you know, I have a learning disability and I was put in a different school and, but I wasn't made fun of, but yet, you know, and all of a sudden we get to this core value of like, they think I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I was made fun of like those things also are very important to get clear. You know, like that's why I say this, I go through this, this exercise with my clients of trying to untap really what maybe some of our core injuries are. And these injuries aren't there to, to scar us and permanently be there. It's just more of a matter of understanding, you know, like I had a math teacher that told me that, and this was like a subconscious agreement I made with myself, which is kind of like a core injury, agreements and injuries, that I was horrible at math. And she said, I remember she specifically, I was in like second grade, said, you know, you're, you have good grades in, in writing and you have good grades in history. Just don't, don't ever worry about math. Don't ever get into, you know, any kind of anything job with math. And she just went on and on. And I remember going home thinking that night. I'm not even going to try to do this math homework. And that went all the way through high school. I, I remember my SATs. I didn't even really try, you know, to do the math part, which probably affected my SATs. You know, just just unbelievable from this one woman's, you know, her her, her comments to me became an agreement that I made with myself and how dangerous and how many agreements have we made with ourselves about what we deserve, what we don't deserve, what we're good at, what we're not good at. And, is, and that's is that another something part of that you it. can share with the audience today is, is to take us through that exercise and, and some tips on how we can identify some of those core injuries or, or core agreements. Yeah. That- I mean, yeah, I mean, I go through like a list of, you know, does any of these resonate with you? I'm not lovable enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not healthy enough. I'm not, you know, pretty enough. Um, I'm not skinny enough. I'm not, um, successful enough. I'm not good at sports enough, you know, like whatever it is, I go through them and I, and I just say, did any of these resonate with you when you were younger? And everybody has insecurities. That's, that's a given, but, but I really want to, you know, and, and then they'll say, well, yeah, this, you know, I thought I wasn't pretty enough or I, or I thought I wasn't good at sports enough. And then I'll say, well, do you think that that, that was something that, you know, really stuck with you? And they'll say, you know, no, because then I got into guitar and I was in a band and I really found my passion. Or they'll say, yes, you know, my dad was my coach and would scream and reprimand me. And, and, and I, I started getting anxiety attacks and, you know, it affected my schoolwork. And then I'll say, you know what, I think this is a core injury. 
because that's, you know, that's it. I mean, it's like we all have insecurities and that's, that's normal, but I just want to assess whether that's, that something else has happened in that, within that, the injurious self-talk. So you you just did therapy on me, Erica. You you just did (laughs) because I I just identified another, another one. (laughs) (laughs) And and that was that I was, um, as a kid, I was too big to play football. You know, they, they used to have, um, husky jeans, um, at Sears, you know, for, um, the tough skins came in a husky size and, um, and that's what I had to, to wear because I, I was a bigger kid and I was too big to play football. And so I always had this kind mm-hmm. of, uh, identification of like being too big and, and, um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, like I'm, I'm pretty confident and comfortable with my, with my weight and my, you know, physical size and all of that now, but, but it, it certainly was a, an injury that I carried with me for a long time. Probably why I'm ex- obsessed about, um, being in physical shape, you know, the, mm-hmm. and all my yeah. friends are now yeah. husky. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny that's so funny yeah I mean but that's I mean it's funny now but yeah that's but that but that you know affects you or or like I had a kid on the on this bus one day I from summer camp I remember and he said something like can you move over your thighs too big or something and I wasn't even a fat kid at that point you know like but I remember him saying that and I thought oh my god am I fat you know like as a little girl like that's and, and it's just these things, these moments. And, and, you know, and if you have a parent that, that reinforces these kinds of things, have like, like a, a parent that pushes you in a way that that's not really you, you know, that can mm-hmm. just compound so all this. I think one of the lessons here is, is that kids, we can carry some of this stuff a long time. You know, these injuries that happen to us as children and, you know, it, it doesn't just land as a, as a nine-year-old and, and then go away. I mean, you remember that incident on the bus today, however many years later Mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I remember these things, you know, from, from being, you know, nine, 10 years old. Um, how can we ensure that as parents and, you know, a, a lot of our friends might have parents that, that were, um, if we have children, that we're making sure that we're doing our part not to let those injuries like really, you know, land right. and 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 settle in and and mm-hmm. be. Um, what's the term? You know, that, that that it might change them in some way. Um, you know, mm-hmm. carry out the ripple effect throughout years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the most important thing any parent can really do is to allow their children to feel <laughs> whatever that is, you know, allow them to feel angry, sad, um, ask them how they're feeling about things. You know, my, my parents got divorced when I was seven or eight and, and no one asked me how I felt. Um, they didn't know any better. Honestly, I don't blame them and I don't I don't have any resentments towards them, but I've learned, you know, that the minute I was sad and I was really sad about it and I would cry and my mom would be like, here's an ice cream or here's a dress or here, you know, she just shut it down immediately. She didn't want me to be sad because she loved me and she didn't want me to be in pain. But I think to allow your kids to be in pain, the, the negative or uncomfortable emotions too are just as important. And they're just, it's just as healing, 
you know, you don't, you don't have to run away from that's them. That's a really good point. You know, cause if we are always, always are masking over our, our emotions and not letting anything land and not, not marinating in it to, bar, to bring back that word that you used earlier, um, that, yeah, yeah. that we can set in place, um, just a pattern of, you know, when we're adult and now we can reach for a beer or a glass of wine or, or whatever it is to change our state immediately, you know, that that can be a crutch because we're not comfortable with feeling. Right. Right. Yeah, I know it is. It, it, it's, it's really, it's, you know, I remember, I remember at thir- thir- 12 or 13, you know, right, right around the time I was settling into a new family life. My mom remarried and she had a new husband and he had kids that were terrors and nightmares. And, you know, I had a whole new family and I was really uncomfortable with the family. And so happened, I was just around 12 or 13 when all that took place. And that's when I found alcohol. And it was like, oh, mm, I have peers that I could talk to that understand their parents are getting divorced. We can use pot and alcohol and go to concerts and sneak out of the house. And, you know, I mean, that's when I, I found my you know, my, my release and, and the way that well, I just I'm glad you found your way sober because you are helping thousands of people, uh, both with your, with your podcast you. and radio show and your book. Um, before we go, if you can give some parting words of wisdom and of course, tell us the best place for us to catch up with you, follow you and stay connected with you. Okay, great. And thank you for having me. This was such a pleasure. And at any time, um, I love talking to you. It's, it's been awesome. Um, so my, my website is probably the best. It, it has pretty much all the information on there. It's ericaspiegelman.com. And that's E-R-I-C-A-S-P-I-E-G-E-L-M-A-N at and dot com. And then I'm, I'm at eSpiegelman on Instagram. I'm at Erica Spiegelman on Twitter. And, um, Facebook, you know, I have a face business Facebook page. I put up inspirational quotes and articles and things every single day having to do with health awesome. and wellness and awesome. recovery. Erica, you've been a great guest. Thanks for being on the better human show. We will be sure to stay in touch with you and check in with you another time. Um, I've just really enjoyed our conversation and thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon.